Hi, I'm Grace. And I'm Robin. This week on the pod, we were joined by geopolitics fellow Guy Benson, who is the political editor of townhall.com, a Fox News contributor and host of Fox News Radio's nationally syndicated Guy Benson show. If you listened to our episode with Mary Catherine Hamm from last season, you might also remember that Guy Benson co-authored the book End of Discussion with her in 2015. Before we jump into it, don't forget to follow us on social media at flyonthewallpod on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. If you have any thoughts or suggestions, email us at flyonthewallpodcast at gmail.com. Guy, thank you so much for joining us in the pod today. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. We'll be starting with a general question. Um, You're currently the host of your own Fox News show. You're a political editor at townhall.com, and you're here with us at Georgetown's Institute of Politics and Public Service. What sparked your interest in politics? So my interest in politics traces all the way back to my middle school sixth grade year when there was a presidential election, and there was a project in middle school where they had us sort of pick a campaign to fake work for within a social studies project. So I remember there was a local newspaper where I grew up in in Northern New Jersey after I moved back to the US. There was a local newspaper that had the two candidates, uh, the two major candidates. So it was Bill Clinton and Bob Dole. And they had sort of on the issues and they had a short summary of where they each stood on whatever, 20 major issues. And I was 11 or something. And I was, yeah, I would have been 11. And I went through and circled which policy position I thought I agreed with more in my 11-year-old brain between the two candidates. And then I tallied up which column I had circled more answers in. And it was, give or take, you know, 14 to six or 16 to four for Bob Dole. So then I was like, okay, I guess that would make me. And then I was like a Republican. So I fake volunteered for Bob Dole's ill-fated presidential campaign, our little middle school class. And that is when I first started paying attention to politics. And I grew more and more interested in it. And I would say my interest became much more serious after 9-11, which was my junior year of high school. So 2001, I was 16 and I grew up just outside of New York City. My town lost a dozen people on 9-11. My father had been in the World Trade Center earlier that morning. My next door neighbor worked in the World Trade Center. It was a really, really traumatic, awful day. Uh, One of the worst days easily of my life. And that was in the sort of ensuing days and the aftermath, there were a lot of extremely weighty, serious policy decisions about what to do and how to protect the country. We were certain we we're going to get attacked again. We just didn't know where or how and where do you launch attacks and all of this other stuff. And that is when it started to sink in for me that politics wasn't just a sport where you pick a team and you wear a jersey and you sort of root for the team and you boo the other team and all of that stuff. It actually, and there's there's plenty of that. There's a lot of really idiotic silliness in politics and pettiness, but in moments of crisis, leadership matters, policy matters, and therefore politics matters. And so I think it went from being sort of uh, an interest 
in the vein of a sports team and fandom to taking it more seriously. Uh, and, and so that was an inflection point for sure. Definitely. It's incredible that you've been interested in politics from such a young age. So why did you choose to go into media and journalism over government work? So my career ambition for years was to be a sports broadcaster. And that's actually what I pursued in high school and in college. I did play-by-play on local TV or campus radio and then summers for the Cape Cod Baseball League. I did baseball, football, basketball, hockey, lacrosse. I mean, I did a lot of sports commentary. I really loved it. My best friend from home, from Northern New Jersey, he stuck with the sports path. So he is now a professional sports broadcaster. He works uh, in the National Hockey League. He's the play-by-play voice of the Vegas Golden Knights uh, from Las Vegas. And he's doing really well. Uh, and he's, he's really good. He's extremely talented. And so he stuck with that path and that career goal. At some point, I realized that I had sort of an, a co-equal passion for politics and started doing a little bit of both. So I would do some baseball broadcasting in the summer, and then I interned for a few summers in college at Fox News. And in college, there was a campus radio station that had a right versus left weekly debate show on the radio. And I asked to do it from the conservative perspective and really enjoyed it and did that on and off for four years, like every other quarter at Northwestern. And I loved that. And so I sort of came to this fork in the road at the towards the end of my senior year of college where I had to decide, am I going to go the sports route? Am I going to go the politics route? Am I going to go to grad school? For once in my life, I didn't have a plan. I've always been a type A planner. Like I had a plan in the womb. Like, you know, I, I always knew what the next step should be in my mind. But when I was 21, 22 years old, for the first time, I didn't really feel like I had a grounded plan. It was disconcerting. Um, I'm sure there are some seniors right now listening to this who can relate. Um, and what ended up happening was I was ironically on a sports broadcasting road trip. Uh, Northwestern's softball team was in the Women's College World Series in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. And I was there covering the games, broadcasting the games. And I got an email out of the blue from a stranger who was a Northwestern alumnus who saw a profile written about me in the alumni magazine asking, inquiring if I had any interest in a job in talk radio, conservative talk radio in Chicago. They needed a producer for a show. And he said, I know your goal isn't to be a producer. Your goal is to be on the air. Would you have any interest in producing a show five days a week? And we would give you potentially a weekend show, Saturday or Sunday. And so you could sort of scratch that itch and develop your voice. And I put together a demo reel of some of my debates and monologues from my uh, radio show on the campus station. I interviewed and they offered me the job. And I remember thinking, I'm 22. This is a job that pays at the time in my mind. I'm like, oh my gosh, like big bucks. I can make $40,000. And Chicago's a cheaper, more affordable city to live in than New York or DC for sure. Uh, Plus benefits and all this stuff. And most importantly, I would be on the air in Chicago, the third biggest media market in the country at age 22. So I was like, 100%, I'm, I'm all in. Took the job. 
uh, had been doing some writing for National Review online and asked if I could sort of continue that relationship. So I had a byline, even if it was online at a reputable known spot and just sort of launched the career from there with a lot of help from other people, got a little lucky. Sometimes you make some of your own luck, but it was a cold email from a stranger offering me a job that sort of nudged me down one of the paths in the fork in the road. And I'm so glad that I got that email and I'm so glad it worked out the way it did because I sort of enjoy having sports be an escape from politics. I can, I can pour my career and heart and soul and all that stuff into policy and politics, et cetera. And then sports is fun, although it should be. I hate when politics invades sports, which is what's happening more and more, but ideally it's an escape. Um, and I think it was the right path for me and Likewise, it was the right path for my buddy to, to go the sports direction. And it's funny how things can, life can be strange and unpredictable and serendipitous and the timing. And I was just sort of casting about for what was next. And from the heavens dropped this random email and it set me on a course that has brought me, oh my gosh, 14 years later, uh, which is sort of crazy to think about, to where I am now. That's incredible. Um, and we're kind of going to piggyback off of that. Um, over the course of your time at Fox News, the network has been the target of attacks from both the right and the left. Um, of the many narratives of, about Fox, and from your perspective as someone who has kind of seen the network grow over the years, do you see as like, which of these narratives do you see as reasonable and which are kind of totally inaccurate or something that just doesn't represent kind of your passion for the industry? Well, I think... What I would say about the Fox hate is that from the left, a lot of the people who hate it sort of casually are people who never watch us, right? They sort of are told what to think about us. They are told that we are terrible and biased and all these other things. They see the little clips where certain things are highlighted or cherry picked um, often by leftists to paint us in the worst possible light. And you have to remember, it's a 24-7 channel. I mean, we have enormous amounts of programming every day, but people sort of are spoon-fed little clips here and there of, you know, how they should feel about Fox. And they would sort of assume it was almost like this cartoon character screaming at the viewers 24-7, you know, all these right-wing, you know, pieces of propaganda and dishonesty and what have you. And I think the reality of Fox is much more nuanced than that. Um, we have a very wide array of programming and shows from people who have a very strong point of view, opinion shows for sure, where I agree and disagree frequently. And then we have strong news programming as well. Um, and, and you know, certain flagship shows that I think are just excellent news shows and it's a blend and it's a mix. And, you know, there's, there's a, literally like a whole industry devoted people just to watch and hate us and try to find something to be mad about and create controversies about and, you know, target advertisers and boycotts and that sort of thing. I think that's kind of a pathetic life to live, to just sit around watching something that you hate all day to try to destroy other people. I think that's a very sad existence. I'm glad it's not my existence. Now, I'm not saying that there's no fair criticism of stuff that appears on the network. I think that's true. If you're in our business and you're on the air 24-7, mistakes are being made, dumb things are going to be said. It happens. 
right? I'm, I'm not someone who's going to stick my head in the sand and say every single thing that's ever happened is terrific and I stand, but no, like that's not how life works. I'm responsible for what I say. Uh, I'm not perfect by any stretch, but I try to be reasonable and nice and, and fair and intellectually honest. And I have a three hour show nationally every day uh, on our radio side. I appear frequently on TV as well. And, you know, I, I try to hold myself to high standards. I'm very proud to work at Fox. I have a lot of amazing colleagues. And, you know, we've been number one for years for a reason. And the, the anti-Fox stuff from the right is often from people who say that, you know, we're not conservative enough or we're not loyal to Donald Trump, for example, enough. And uh, to some of those people, it's like, well, first of all, there are some extremely pro-Trump hosts and shows on the network, obviously. But also as a news network, it's not our job to give you exactly what you want to hear all the time or serve a political party or a political figure, right? That's not the job description. Um, obviously, more of our opinion leans to the right. There's no doubt about that. But we also have news programming. We also have people on the left who give their opinion. I know that sometimes triggers some of the snowflakes on the right. We have a lot of snowflakes who melt down on both sides because they only want to hear stuff that they agree with. But I think that's actually extremely boring in the long run. It's not helpful, honestly. It's just an echo chamber. And I'd rather mix it up and be challenged and hear other perspectives and hash that stuff out, um, especially in the context of, of news and politics. Yeah, definitely. Thank you for sharing that insight with us. So pivoting from your career at Fox to your writing career, last season, we had the privilege to interview MK Ham, yes. uh, the co-author of your book, End of Discussion, Lovely, Lovely Woman. Um, what inspired the two of you to write it? And why do you think the content has stayed so relevant? Well, yeah, unfortunately, end of discussion is as relevant today as it ever has been. And we were sort of warning. So we wrote the book in 2014. It was published in 15. So here we are six years later. And the problem is worse, for sure. So we were talking about outrage mobs, shutting down debate. It was sort of an anti-cancel culture book right, a clarion call warning against cancel culture before that term even existed. And we would, we talk, we're best friends. So we talk all the time and almost on a daily basis, sometimes more than once a day. And we would have these conversations where we were just shocked and disturbed about what was happening. We're like, my head is exploding. Did you see what happened with this? Or this person got and again, the, the terms were different back then, but this person got canceled or this insane outrage is happening. Like this is getting out of control. This is not good for the country. This is not good for political discourse or anything. Like people are trying to win. And we say this is mostly on the left, not exclusively. People trying to win debates by preventing the debates from even happening. You have no right to speak because you are in the wrong category of skin color or whatever. It's crazy. It's silencing. It's not real discussion. It's, it's an abandonment of reason and fair thinking in favor of intense tribalism with all these rules about what you can and cannot say, what you can and cannot think. Hardcore identity politics, just awful. And this was six years ago we were worried about it. So finally, there was an episode out in Silicon Valley where the founder of a major internet company was hounded out of his company because he had made a donation in favor of traditional marriage and a ballot initiative in California, Proposition 8 in 2008, which passed in California. 
on the same day Barack Obama won California in a blowout, that constitutional amendment passed defining marriage as one man and one woman. Now, Mary Catherine and I were both for gay marriage. We actually disagreed, right? I am gay married. I am very pro-gay marriage because I'm I'm doing it. Um, but we didn't feel like having a mainstream politically conservative position should be a reason to be thrown out of the company that you founded. And there were just a number of different things about that dispute and that debate at that time that really concerned us. Um, like we remember there was a debate on MSNBC around that time where someone said, well, are these sort of the new blacklists? Like, are we going to find everyone who donated to Proposition 8 and throw them out of their jobs? And one of the left-wing commentators was like, yes, like that is what we want to do. And so we said, well, that is really messed up. And we thought to ourselves, someone ought to write a book about this because it's a real problem. And then we said, oh, maybe that's us. Oh, well, that sounds like a lot of work. But if there's two of us, it's half a book each. That seems easier. Let's do that. So we did. And as I said, it came out in 2015. We did an updated version, um, a paperback edition in 2017, where we added a new chapter because Trump had been elected. And in a lot of ways, it still stands up, which is good for book sales in some ways, but it's just depressing for the country. And I feel like the problems that we were raising then have intensified and are exacerbated and we're going in the wrong direction, which is um, disappointing. Definitely, thank you for sharing that with us. So um, stepping back a bit and looking at American politics broadly, what do you see as the most dynamic aspect of American politics at the moment and what is most susceptible to upcoming change? Well, I mean, I think you're seeing big, interesting fights within both parties. Right, the Republican Party is trying to figure out what they're going to be about with Trump no longer the president. Is he going to remain the dominant figure in the party basically as long as he's alive? How do we negotiate that? How do we manage that? Is he going to run again? Uh, the, you know, the Trump versus anti-Trump or the middle ground, like what does that all look like? How much time and effort should we spend fighting each other about that stuff when the Democrats control everything in Washington right now? What does that mean? And then the Democrats have sort of the mainstream party versus the far left progressives. And I feel like the mainstream party is inched left and left and left and left over years. And even like one of the most moderate or relatively moderate people in their primary in 2020, Joe Biden, who became the nominee, I mean, his presidency has been clearly to the left, even of Barack Obama so far. Um, and, and he hasn't really made really an, even an effort at bipartisanship, even though he ran on that. And I think that there's an enormous amount of pressure from the left flank and the base and other things on policy, on procedural, you know, tactics, strategy, all of it. So there, there are struggles, you know, power struggles within state level parties where you've got hardcore Trumpy people and the Republican parties censuring, you know, statewide officials who are Republicans for not being Trumpy enough or, you know, for not going along with the big lie about the stolen election or whatever. You know, there's a, there's a fight there. And then in Nevada, for example, the socialists have just taken over the Democratic Party. They, they won. They beat the establishment. They've taken over the party. So in terms of dynamics, it's, there's a lot of upheaval. There's a lot of weird sort of cross currents where, 
you know, Trump wanted to pull out of Afghanistan and some people were for that and against it in both parties. Now Biden's going to do it and people aren't really sure, are we for this or against it? You know, who proposes it? It's, it's kind of weird. There's been a realignment to some extent of, you know, working class people becoming much more Republican and college educated people, even in the suburbs, shifting leftward or more towards the Democrats and some interesting shifts among certain racial minorities towards the Republicans, towards Trump. And there's a lot of potential, at least, for long-term realignment right now, which is interesting and makes everything kind of fascinating but hard to predict. For sure. And I want to hone in on a demographic that you're very familiar with as a prominent, outspoken, young conservative. From your perspective, what role do you think the youth will play in the coming years of the conservative movement, even potentially a conservative movement that is still very pro-Trump? Yeah, I mean, because for a lot of the youngest generation of conservatives, Trump is the guy, right? He's the only Republican president really that they've had a chance to vote for or work for and sort of live in. So to them, that's sort of like the normal, like the baseline, which is kind of wild to think about. Um, and there was definitely a, a huge amount of grassroots support for him and like cult of personality and people really getting behind him and excited and energized by him. Um, I think that some of the old school traditional sort of conservative talking points have, have gone by the wayside. Um, I think that in some ways, younger conservatives are gonna be more progressive on certain social issues, but more conservative on others. Um, I wonder if there's gonna be as much talk about sort of fiscal restraint and the debt. I think we should be worried about it because we're the ones who are gonna have to pay for all of this stuff eventually, but that was not really top of mind in the Trump era at all, which I think was a problem for Republicans. And I made that point repeatedly. And also, you know, from my generation, when I was, you know, a young conservative, you know, that was a 9-11 generation and we were in a war footing and, you know, terrorism is a huge issue. And now there's a massive part of the Republican Party, especially a lot of the Trump loyalists who are strongly against foreign intervention and entanglements, especially, you know, longer term commitments. So they want a strong military with the ability to strike and take bad people out, but not to go and plant ourselves places for a long period of time based on, you know, Iraq, which I think was a mistake, Afghanistan, which I don't think it was a mistake, but we've been there now for so long. Um, it the, the way that the Republican Party and the base thinks about issues, talks about some issues, I mean, it, there are big, big differences in the GOP and the sort of rising generation in 2021 compared to, you know, 05, let's say. Um, there, there's some stuff that's the same, right? Very similar. Some of it is unrecognizable. Yeah, definitely. Thank you for sharing those insights with us. So let's turn back to your own career a little bit. So you've talked a lot about COVID-19 and post-vaccine life on your show. Without making this too broad, what are some of the lasting ways that the pandemic has impacted the political world, whether that be journalism, campaigns, or just governance? Well, I mean, I think that there's right now a big fight about voting. And do we take some of the emergency measures from a pandemic and make them permanent? And if we don't, is that suppression, right? That's what the Democrats in some cases are trying to say. Um, I think that we had an especially sort of combustible year as a country because you had some of these other stressors like, you know, 
George Floyd and the riots and all this other stuff. And then on top of it, people stuck in their houses for months on end with so much anxiety. Um, it, it's been a tough stretch. I have one of my two shots down. Um, as of this recording, I'm one of two. My Moderna went into my body last week and I'm looking forward in May to getting my second one. Although when you're like two weeks beyond your first shot with the mRNA, whether it's Pfizer or Moderna, um, you're up to, based on the studies, you're up to like 80% efficacy, which is kind of on par with J&J. So it's, it's actually quite a lot of protection, but I, of course, will go get my second one boosted all the way up. Um, I can't wait to be fully vaccinated. I've been talking about it constantly. I have booked so many trips already into the summer. Like I've got coming up in the next few months, I've got Vegas, I've got Massachusetts, I've got Northern California, I've got Idaho, I've got probably Atlanta again. Um, I've got a few speaking gigs in Florida. Like I'm just booking stuff. I am, I am ready to rejoin basically normal life. And I think that vaccines are the, are the ticket to that. Um, and I just wish more prominent people, especially public health experts would send that message a little bit more clearly rather than constantly talking about the things that maybe technically might be slightly quasi sort of possibly not fully risk-free, like that's not helpful. Um, I think the Israeli model is helpful. You get vaccinated and life is normal again, let's have a party. And when I'm fully vaccinated, I will absolutely be doing all of the things. That's fantastic. So those are all the meaty questions we have for today. Um, but we usually close out um, with all of our guests with a few lightning round questions. Oh, okay. These are very short, Love a lightning uh, whatever round. comes to your mind first. So our first one is actually related to the pandemic. What, if anything, will you miss about pandemic life? I mean, I do like the fact that I do basically all of my radio shows and all of my television appearances from the room where I'm currently sitting. Like it makes my days more efficient. I can just get all my work done and not have to move around very much. Um, so I miss going places. I miss traveling. I miss seeing other people. But there is an efficiency to being able to do what you need to do in sweatpants every day. That is a convenience that I have enjoyed quite a lot. And seeing my dog, like spending so much time with my dog all the time when I'm back to work and, and not home as much. Uh, I think that's going to be a tough adjustment for him. He's like, what, what happened? You guys were always here. Where are you going? Completely relate on both fronts. I'll definitely miss um, having my pets at home when I'm back on campus. So next question, you're obviously familiar with the podcast world. So who is your favorite guest you've ever interviewed on your show? Wow, that is a really tough question. I recently was able to do an interview with a sports broadcaster named Doc Emmerich, who was the lead hockey broadcaster for years in this country and just like an idol of mine, the nicest human being ever. He had a book out and having the opportunity to talk to him. And I grew up a Devils fan. I'm a Devils fan. He was the Devils broadcaster for years. And it was sort of a pinch, pinch me sort of moment. Uh, I also am a huge fan of Top Chef on Bravo. I don't know if you've ever seen Top Chef, big cooking competition. And I had during the pandemic, sometimes you'd like reach out to people on the pandemic, they just say yes. 
So I've some people from ESPN that I really like. I've had them on the show. We reached out and we've had Tom Colicchio on the show a few times, uh, who's the head judge at Top Chef in this huge restaurateur. And he and I would occasionally spar over the years on Twitter about different things because he's a lefty and I'm a righty and we would fight about stuff. But uh, we we get along overall pretty well. We've never met, but we, you know, we'll go back and forth and he's been on my show and we agree or we disagree and it's, it's fun. And I was able to ask him the last time he was on about the upcoming season of Top Chef, which has just started recently in Portland. Um, so I was like, is it Top Chef Antifa? Um, but it was not. Uh, and it was really cool how they had to film it during the pandemic in a bubble. And so I asked him sort of tell us about how it was to film this new season. And his answers were fascinating. And that could, that interview could have gone on for another half hour. Um, so that was kind of cool. Like people that I have enjoyed in context other than politics, having them join the show and talk a little politics or not at all and and have that opportunity. It's been cool. Cool. And our final question is actually, what is your favorite TV show? Well, I, I watch a lot. I think we're in the golden age of television. There's so much great television. Um, I'm trying to think sort of like all time. Oh, there's some, there's so many good ones. I would say all time, my favorite drama is an HBO show from the early 2000s called The Wire, which is set in Baltimore. It's about the sort of the drug trade in Baltimore. And there are five seasons and each season sort of has a theme and it is so good. And it starts a little bit slow and you have to get into it. And it's a slow burn and you get to know the characters, but just the depth of the characters and people talk about like Baltimore officials, Baltimore drug dealers. They're like, this show is insanely realistic. Um, so that, that was a show that I got like totally immersed in. And I, I probably want to go back and rewatch all of it. Um, Cause it's been years now. And then my favorite TV comedy of all time is arrested development. Um, just hilarious. Uh, I missed that show. They did five seasons. It was the, originally the three seasons that were amazing and aired on Fox. Then Netflix had two additional seasons years later, one of which was bad, one of which was better, but the original OG three seasons were just amazing. My favorite character of all time, Lucille Bluth, uh, played by Jessica Walter, who just recently passed away. And I did a tribute to her in my GU politics class and on my radio show. Cause, um, that character, Lucille, is just epic. Um, and so I, I guess it's hard. There, There's tons of runners up and I could go for an hour about it. But if I had to pick, I'd say The Wire and Arrested Development. All right. I'll definitely have to check out all of those shows. I actually haven't watched any of them. So excited to get started on them. Um, so yeah, that's all the questions we had for you today. Thank you so much for sitting down and taking the time to chat with us and our listeners um, about your career and your insight. Oh, absolutely. You bet. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of Fly on the Wall. We hope you enjoyed this conversation with Guy Benson. Make sure you follow us on social media at Fly on the Wall Pod on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. As always, you can also email us at flyonthewallpodcast at gmail.com. Make sure to hit that notification button because you won't want to miss our season finale next week.